just curious again, show of hands, how many of you enjoy the study of prophecy? Okay, a few of you. A few of you. Okay? So what I'm going to do is, uh, 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 most of you all know I am not much of an artist, okay? I'm not much of an artist, but here I'm going to draw a picture of a person, all right? This is Matt, because Matt's secure in who he is, okay? So I'm, I'm drawing this picture of Matt, okay? And y'all see Matt there? Does that, does that look like it? Okay? And, uh, you know, there's a smile. There's a smile. But, you know, if I'm drawing this picture of Matt and I give him, like, a humongous nose, <laughs> do you want to take a picture of it? We talk to you on the mirror and get a selfie with it, okay? See the resemblance? Yeah, pretty accurate. Okay, okay. What happens when you take, if you're drawing, painting a picture, something like that of a face, and you take one aspect of the face and you really focus in on it? If you're not careful, you get a very distorted idea of what the face looks like. Do you understand what I'm saying here? And sometimes what can happen is we have these different theological understandings, these different theological systems that help us make sense of the Bible. But sometimes we will have a favorite area of doctrine that we exaggerate. And if we're not careful, we don't get a well-rounded picture of what the Bible teaches us from a theological perspective. Does this make sense for you? So when I was growing up, we, we, had, we did all these prophecy conferences and all that kind of stuff, and we talked uh, a, a lot about prophecy. What we're going to look at today is Matthew chapter 24, and this is what I'm going to tell you about Matthew 24. I have... This, this passage of Scripture has been bothering me for 43 years. Okay? 43 years. I remember the first time I read Matthew 24. I remember when I recommitted my life to Christ, I was starting to read through the New Testament, and I was, I was reading uh, through it, and, and I had grown up with all these prophecy conferences, and we had it all figured out. I, I mean, I... I knew, I knew as a kid, let me, let me tell you what it was like, okay? This is what I was taught. It, this is what I was taught based upon Matthew chapter 24. I was taught, I was taught this. Anybody know when Israel was, became a nation again? 48, 1948, okay? 1948, it became a nation again. Okay, anybody know the length of a generation in the Bible? Forty years. Now, where does that idea come from? Hmm? Comes from God. Okay. Uh, actually, where that idea comes from is, do you remember the disobedient generation that came out of Egypt? How long did they wander in the desert? Forty years. Oh, yeah. Okay, so a generation lasts 40 years, then they die in the desert. All right? So that is a biblical generation. This is what I was taught. I was taught that the nation of Israel was founded again as a nation in 1948. And what Matthew 24 says, this generation will not pass away before all these things happen. I was taught that all prophecy in the Bible would be fulfilled by 1988. So as a young person, this is what I figured out. If Jesus is coming back in 1988, why should I finish high school? Seriously. I mean, why, why finish school if Jesus is going to come back? Do you understand where this kind of, if you're not careful, uh, a, a kind of a twisted emphasis on Scripture can lead you to very, very bad conclusions, okay? Or really good conclusions, okay? Uh, so that's kind of what I was, I was going up with. But then what happened for me is I began to read through the Bible for myself. I began to struggle with things that were taught me that were given to me and taught to me as certainties. And when I began to look at the scriptures, I began to look and say, you know what? Some of what's being said to me and some of how scripture is being interpreted doesn't look like it's matching up with what I'm reading when I'm reading through the scriptures. By the way, that's why you should be reading through the scriptures. You should be looking to see is what's being taught here, does it come into alignment with what the Bible actually teaches? Is, are, you, are you with me on this? Okay? Okay. Uh, so, so uh, there's a guy, his name is uh, D.A. Carson, and I am a Bible nerd. I am. 
I, I just, you know, I, I think I've admitted that, and we all know that. I'm a Bible nerd. I, I love to study the Bible. I love to learn. I love to share with people with, with what I'm learning. I don't necessarily love preaching, and I don't necessarily love preparing to teach, because there's a difference between, there's a difference between just reading your Bible, studying it, sharing with another person what you're learning, as opposed to being able to stand up and say, this is what the Bible says. And try to make sure you're being true to Scripture, you're being clear, you're showing how Scripture is relevant to today's life, and then trying to, to present it in a way that, that, that you will find it not too monotonous, okay? Not too boring, all right? So uh, there's a guy, his name is D.A. Carson, and D.A. Carson, he is a true Bible nerd. And what I mean by that is he knows how to make Scripture very boring, okay? No, I'm just kidding. He's... It's not like that, but he's like he's one of these guys that when I am reading Carson's stuff, I have to read it with a dictionary. I do. I just I, and I've, I've read theology for a few years. I've studied the Bible for a few years. I know a little bit. You know, I, I've gone to a really really good school where I made really really good grades and all that kind of stuff. But when I'm reading Carson's stuff, I realize there's a difference between being a student of the Scriptures and then being a scholar, and then being an elite scholar. Where I would put Carson at is I would put him in the place of being an elite scholar. And what, what Carson says about Matthew 24, he says, Few chapters of the Bible have elicited more disagreement among interpreters than Matthew 24 and its parallels in Mark 13 and, and 21. Now, if you pick up five different commentaries on, on the book of Matthew, and, and you look at, not just, I'm not talking about commentaries like popular Bible teachers, because sometimes popular Bible teachers, they borrow all their stuff from someone else. And then sometimes if they're not careful, they kind of sensationalize things. That, that can happen. That can happen. But if you pick up five different commentaries on Matthew 24, and I know this from personal experience, when you read it, you will get five very different ideas about how to understand Matthew chapter 24. That's why people like me have struggled with Matthew 24 for so long. And that's the reason there's so much disagreement. So what I'm going to do today is I'm not going to really try to preach a sermon as much as I'm going to try to do a survey. And the outline that I am going to use to talk about Matthew 24 is one that I borrowed from Carson. And the reason I borrowed it from Carson is because I felt like of the commentaries I read, he did the best job of dealing with the text, which means that he's the one who agrees with me, okay? And, uh, but I felt like he was the one who does the best job of really dealing with the text, and, uh, and, and that way, if afterwards you hate it, I can blame it all on Carson, okay? Uh, but, but I wanted to borrow from him just because I felt like that he does a lot better job with this text than I can do, Okay? So what I'm going to do for us today is we're just going to read the text, not the entire chapter, but we're going to read Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 36. Then I'm going to try to give you a survey of what this is about, and then what we're going to look at is how do we take what is written in the Scripture and what is said by, by Jesus, and how do we put it into practice in our daily lives? Is, are you with me? Can we do this? Matthew chapter 24, if you have your Bible, I would encourage you to open it. If you've got, uh, if you got on your, your smartphone... Look at it there, but you want a Bible in your hand today. You really do, or you will be lost uh, throughout this message. All right? Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its, its buildings. Real quickly, real quickly. Remember, this is the last week of the life of Jesus. This is the last week of the life of Jesus, and Jesus has been in, in the middle of all this controversy and conflict with the religious leaders of Israel. And so Jesus has just walked away from having a, con a conversation with the Pharisees, the scribes, the other religious leaders. And, and when he's been talking with them, he's been saying things to them like, whoa, you're a bunch of hypocrites, you are snakes, you are vipers, you are... He just wasn't real nice, Okay. I know that sounds bad to say Jesus wasn't nice, but if you were a Pharisee, you probably would have walked away offended that day. And so he's walking away from that conversation. He is with his disciples. They're walking out of Jerusalem, up the Mount of Olives. And, uh, and he's with his disciples. 
And what the Bible says, verse 1, when his disciples came up to him, uh, his disciples came up to him to call his attention uh, to its buildings. Now, why would the disciples call attention to the buildings? And we're gonna, I'm going to show you a little picture here of, of the temple in just a moment. Um, if you grew up in the ancient world, most likely you were from this little podunk village, and the most sophisticated architecture you saw were basically huts, okay? I mean, I was just, you, you weren't exposed to a lot of great architecture. But when you went into Jerusalem and you saw the temple on the top of the Temple Mount, it was spectacular. It was spectacular by modern-day standards. It was a massive structure, about 1,600 feet long, uh, the whole complex, about 1,600 feet long, a little over five football fields, about 900 feet wide, okay, about three football fields. It was massive. It was made, it was built with these huge stones. Some of these stones weighed uh, upwards of 100 tons each. Now, in the ancient world, they didn't have what we have in technology. And they built this temple with stones, some of them weighing 100 tons. And just so, in case you're, you're not sure how, how heavy 100 tons is, that's about 50 modern-day cars. The average car today is about 2 tons. So just imagine each of these stones, each stone is roughly the equivalent in, in mass of 50 cars. And, um, and, and one of those stones, there's one stone, it is massive, it is like, it's like 45 feet long. It's like nine or, tw- you know, I don't like, it's like nine feet tall, if I remember correctly, 12 feet uh, deep. But it weighs an estimated 570 tons. It is massive. This building was covered with marble and then covered with gold, uh, parts of it. And so when you walked into Jerusalem and you saw this building, if the sun was shining against it, it would blind you. It was incredible. And so what the Scripture tells us, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his, his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. And then Jesus says this, verse 2, Do you see all these things? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Now, if you were living in that day and time, and you're imagining stones weighing 100 tons or more each being thrown down, that would be hard to grasp. I want to show you a couple of pictures here real quick. This is a model of Herod's temple. And then, can we get the next picture, please? Okay, and these are what some of the stones look like. I mean, not all the stones were 100 tons, but it just kind of gives you an idea. We're not talking about bricks that you know, for a facade of a, a home that you might build today. We're talking about massive stones. Um, and, and Jesus is saying they're going to all be torn down. Verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. And, and the disciples say this to Jesus. They say, tell us, tell us, when will this happen? Okay? When will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? How many questions are there there? Okay, some people say three, some people say two. Okay? We'll, we'll just call it two, make it as simple as we can, all right? There's one question. When is the temple going to be destroyed? That's what they want to know. Jesus has just told them the temple is going to be destroyed. This is hard to imagine in the mind of a first century Jew. They want to know, well, when's this going to happen? When's, you know, it's like, you know, if, if we said, you know, if I told you that, that San Francisco is going to be destroyed, you know, the, the, the first question you would probably be asking is, when? When, when is that going to happen? And, and so they're wanting to know, when is this going to happen? And then they ask him another question. They ask him, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, the way the disciples ask this question is they're asking it as if it's all one event. Okay? They're asking it as if it's all one event. Um, I'm going to come back to that in a moment. Jesus answered, he says, watch out that no one deceives you. Be careful. Be careful. Watch out. Be careful that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah. And they will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. 
But see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of birth pains. Then you'll be handed over to to be persecuted and put to death. And you'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, at that time, um, where am I at? Verse 10. I know that. At that time, many will turn away from, from their faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets uh, will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, uh, the love of most will grow cold. This isn't a real pleasant picture, all right? Uh, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Uh, verse 15. So when you see standing in the holy place, anybody know what the holy place is? It's a temple, okay? And a part of the temple is considered the holy place, and there's a part that's called the holy of holies. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, anybody know what that's about? Okay? But I want you to be a little bit slow when you say you know what that's about. Because there's an abomination of desolation that's talked about in Daniel. And it's talked about three different places, but not all three are the same. If you go back and you read each one of them and you read them in their context, they look kind of different. Why do they look kind of different? Because they are. Okay? They're, they're different. He says, so when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel... Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let, uh, let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be a great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here, here is the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. By the way, the elect, that we're just talking about those who are chosen by God. The, the chosen, those who believe in Jesus and have been saved. Okay? Um, where am I at? 25. See that I've told you ahead of time. I'm sorry, I look up for my Bible and I forget where I'm at. All right. So if anyone tells you, there he is, there's the Messiah, out in the wilderness, don't go out, uh, don't go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east and is visible even to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet to call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson, Jesus says. He's just been talking to us about what? Okay. He's just been talking to us about the end, but what else has he been talking to us about? Okay, he's been talking to us about the second coming, but what was the original question by the disciples? When will this happen? What are they asking about? They're talking about the destruction of the temple. When was the temple destroyed? 70 A.D. Okay? Now, if we miss that, then we miss the context. The original context is the destruction of the temple. 
and the sign of his coming and the end times. What happens is a lot of people focus on the sign of Jesus' coming and the end times, and they completely dismiss the first part of the question the disciples were asking. When you do that, you lose half of the context. When you only bring half of a context to Scripture, you know what that means? It means you're going to miss a lot of what the Scripture is saying. Okay? So if you bring half of the context to the Scripture instead of the whole context to the Scripture, you're going to miss a lot of stuff. You're going to misinterpret things. Why? Because you're interpreting it all from only part of the context. You ever hear a phone conversation and you hear one half of it because you can't hear what the other person is saying on the other side? And you think you know what the person is talking about, and then later you discover they weren't talking about what you thought they were talking about. Have you ever had that experience? If you miss half of the context, you can begin to draw conclusions that aren't necessarily consistent with looking at it in light of the total context. We've got to look at context. Otherwise, we're going to be really messed up, and this is where a lot of Bible prophecy goes wrong is they pay attention to one part of the context, and this is what, what happens, is we come up with a system of understanding. Then we look at the Bible, we look at the parts that fit our system, we fit those around it, and then the parts that don't fit our system, what do we do? We stretch it. We pull it, push it, squeeze it. We, we, we wrap it around our system. We don't say, oh, you know what? My system needs to be tweaked. Instead, we just tweak the Scriptures because it's a whole lot easier to tweak the Scriptures than to be true to Scripture and examine our system. This is what goes wrong with a lot of what's called Bible prophecy today. And when I'm saying that, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just, you know, I I just think that, that sometimes if we're not careful, we begin to draw conclusions that aren't there. What verse are we in? I don't know where we're at. 32, verse 32. All right, verse 32. Uh, Verse 32 says this. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. All right, time out. Okay, I want you, because you have a Bible in front of you, either you're looking at your Bible or you have, uh, you have one on your smartphone and you're looking at it there. I want you to tell me what questions come to your mind as you read this text. Okay, we're done. All right, just kidding. What questions come to your mind? Diane. Okay, this generation. Fantastic question. Especially because of where this text appears in, 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 in the chapter. That is a fantastic uh, question and observation. Something else? Any other questions come to your mind? What is the abomination of desolation? I mentioned that it's mentioned several different times in, in Daniel. When I was studying this text this week, I sat down, I probably wrote out, I don't know, like six or seven pages of notes, handwritten notes, on Matthew 24. Then I went back and I reread Daniel chapters 8 through 11. And I made another, probably five or six pages of handwritten notes. Okay? Now, the reason I'm doing that is, is that I'm trying to force myself to really pay attention to what does the text say. And what I found as I was reading through, uh, as I was reading through, the book of Daniel, this abomination of desolation, is used several different times. And in each time, he talks, about, he talks about it in a little bit different way. It's not always, he's not always talking about it the same way. It, 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 so, so there's this, the abomination of desolation. All right? Um, yeah, I can spell that. All right. Another question comes to your mind. Okay, so let's just, what I'm going to say that is a little bit different. I'm just going to say we've got two questions. So which part of the text is addressing which question? That is 
a fantastic question. And this is why there's so many different ideas from different Bible commentators about how to understand the text. Because none of us are in agreement on which part of the text is addressing which question. So, okay, I'm, I, anybody ever heard of preterism? Anybody familiar with preterism? Preterist? Okay, okay. So, uh, so there are some people who say that everything that happened through verse 35 all happened prior to the destruction of the temple. Okay? Meaning that every bit of this is historical, and it happened by 70 A.D., which is, I don't really buy that, because I don't think Jesus came back before 70 A.D., okay? There are other people who say every bit of this is future, and they say that Jesus doesn't even answer the question, when will the temple be destroyed, okay? There are some people who say that. Warren Wiersbe is a Bible teacher who believes that, all right? Uh, I don't agree with him, okay? There are a lot of other guys who say, you know, I think you're a great Bible teacher and really good guy, and you bring a lot of really good things to a lot of discussions, but on this thing, you're wrong, okay? So what part is, is he addressing which question? Okay, any other questions that come to your mind? I'm sorry? The great signs and wonders by the false messiahs? Okay, signs and wonders, all right. Okay, sign of Jesus. All right, I'm going to stop right there. I will not answer all these questions, okay? I'm not going to answer all these questions. I'm going to try to as best I can, but I'm not going to get them all answered. All right, Uh, sometimes when Bible teachers talk about Bible prophecy, one of the things that they like to do is they like to... uh, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but it's one that I think most of us can grasp where maybe you're driving down a road, down a highway, and in the distance, down this highway, and here's the highway, okay? We've already established that I'm a great artist, right? Okay. And as we're driving down this highway, we can see this mountain, and then we see this other mountain. And we're driving to them, toward these mountains. And as we're driving straight towards these two mountains, they look very close together. Have you ever had this experience? But then as you continue to drive, you pass the first mountain. And when you get to the first mountain, all of a sudden you discover that that second mountain that was so close is way off in the distance. Have you ever had that experience before? So that when you're looking at both of them together, they look like they're right next to each other. But if you could look at it from the side, it might look more like this, where it looks like two mountains that are close to the same size. In reality, you have one mountain that's here, And then far, far away, you have another mountain here. And because you're looking at it coming towards them, they look like they're a similar size. They look like they're close together. But when you see it from the side, you actually see that they're very, very far apart. Okay? When the disciples are talking to Jesus, they are asking these questions with a mindset that all of this stuff is going to happen together. Okay? Are you with me? But when we look at it from a historical standpoint, we know that the temple was destroyed when? 70 A.D. 70 A.D. By the way, what do we say was the length of a, of a Bible generation? Forty years. Anybody know when Jesus died? Okay, some people say 30 A.D., some people say 33. So the time frame between when Jesus was speaking with this group of people, this is the week that he is crucified and will be resurrected, and the time of the destruction of the temple is is how long? About 40 years. This generation will not pass away. Now, that's the reason some people believe that everything from verse 35, uh, you know, know, from 1 to 35 is all, has already taken place. And that's because they're looking at it as all one event. All right? Okay? Um, So, okay. What do we do with this? What do we do with all this stuff? Um, I have no clue. All right. I'm, just, I'm going to give it a shot. I'm going to give it a shot. I'm just going to ask for a little bit of patience on this. All right. So, okay, if I erase this, wait a second. I'll keep the, I'll keep the, the questions up there. All right? All right. Um, when you look at this text, 
this is just the way I'm going I'm to give it to you, okay? Uh, chapter 24, verses 1 through 3, Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple, and his disciples ask him two questions. When will these things take place, and what will be the sign uh, of your coming in the end of the age? You got that? Okay, you got verses 1 through 3. All right? Uh, the, the second part of this text is uh, verses 4 through 14. 4 through 14. And, and I'm just going to give this to you the way I see it. And by the way, uh, again, remember, I, I borrowed all this from D.A. Carson. All I'm trying to do is take what I got from Carson, and I'm trying to make it accessible to you. All right? And so what Carson says, and I really believe he's right, is that what Jesus is doing in verses 4 through 14 is he's giving us a broad overview of Christian suffering between the two advents. What are the two advents? The first coming of Jesus and the what? The second coming of Jesus. And basically what Jesus is doing is he's giving us a context. A context for understanding how he's going to answer these two questions. Does that make sense? Now, you may or may not agree with that. That's fine. But, but this, is why, this is why I see this, is that, and, and, and this is along the lines of what, what, what Carson says, is that over the last 20 centuries, we have seen false messiahs who have tried to deceive people. Is that true? Yeah, I'd say over the last 20 centuries, there have been a few false messiahs, a few false prophets. Over the last 20 centuries, I'm going to say that there have been wars and rumors of wars. Would you agree with that? I mean, that's not just something that happened leading up to 70 A.D., and then after that, it all went away. Okay? And that's not just something that's going to happen way off in the future. We've been having wars and rumors of wars for centuries, for roughly 20 centuries. Okay? We've had nation rise against nation. We've had kingdom rise against kingdom. We have had famines. We have had earthquakes. There's nothing new about any of this. For 20 centuries, there has been war. There has been famine. There have been earthquakes, there have been false messiahs, there have been false prophets. This has been going on for 20 centuries. Verse 9, you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. Did persecution end in 70 AD? Are we still waiting for persecution to happen? For 20 centuries, people have been dying for the cause of Christ. In fact, in the last 100 years, more people, more followers of Jesus have died in the last 100 years than the previous 19 centuries. There's been persecution going on for centuries. And then what Jesus says, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. And he says, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. There is an exhortation for you here. This is one thing you've got to get right. Actually, there are two exhortations for you in this, this, this little text of Scripture. Actually, there are three, okay? There are three. First one is this. Don't be deceived. There's going to be false teachers. There's going to be false prophets. There are going to be false messiahs. Don't be deceived. That's an exhortation. Be careful. Be careful. Number two, uh, number two stand firm to the end. Stand firm. Stand firm in your love. The love of most will grow cold. Don't let your love grow cold. Stand firm to the end. Do not let your love grow cold. It's easy in a world of great wickedness to become callous to suffering. It is easy in a world that's very, very busy skimming in relationships to not love well. Don't let your love grow cold. And then number three, uh, in, 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 in verse 14, he says, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. And what Jesus is saying to us here is that every generation has a responsibility to proclaim the gospel until the very end. We are never finished proclaiming the gospel. By the way, if your idea of proclaiming the gospel, is sending a little bit of money to a missionary in another part of the world, I'm going to tell you that proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the world begins with going across the street and next door. 
See, the gospel that's got to be proclaimed, the only way the gospel is going to be proclaimed to the ends of the earth is if you and I are taking it next door and across the street. Is that we have a responsibility. We have a holy privilege. Now, the way you do that is going to be a little bit different from me. Okay? So you may not necessarily go out knocking on doors. I've done that before. You may not stand on the street corner yelling at people, turn or burn. But what I am telling you is that you need to be invested in proclaiming the gospel. That's why we do things like our our egg hunt, is we are trying to build bridges of goodwill to people in our community. We are trying to build, um, we're trying to build healthy connection with people so that as we have opportunity, we can share with others the reason for our hope in Jesus. That's the reason we do things like that. The, the, the re, every year, every year, we've done this now uh, for about a, a year or two, and we've not done a great job of it. We're, we're going to be better at it this year. Next year, we're going to be even better at it. And two years from now, and three years, and five years from now, we're going to get better and better and better at this. We're going to get better to the end. We're going to get better at learning how to share our story of hope in 100 words or less. We're going to do that. We're going to do it every year. We're going to learn. I'm going to take a Sunday, and we're going to take a Sunday to talk about how to share your personal story of hope. Every year, we are going to take a Sunday, and we're going to talk about how to be ready to share with another person. If a person were to ask you, okay, why are you a Christian? How can I become a Christian? We're going to train you in how to do that. We're not going to have a seminar that's later in the day for you. Otherwise, a lot of people won't show up. We're going to do it on Sunday morning. And you're just going to have to say, I don't want to do this. And you're not going to show up. But folks, I'm going to tell you, for the rest of the history, or whatever, the future of this church, as long as we're around, every year I'm going to do what I can to help train you and prepare you and develop you. And some of you are like, I'm terrified, I'm afraid. And the reason some of us are terrified and afraid of evangelism is because we're telling ourselves lies. Instead of listening to the truth, we're telling ourselves lies. We're telling ourselves lies like, God could never work through someone like me. God could never use me to explain the gospel to another person. Or we're telling ourselves lies like, they they don't really know or want to know about Jesus. Folks, this last week, let me get off track here, uh, and that's okay. This last week, uh, I had jury duty, and uh, it was a rape trial. And uh, I am so grateful that I got dismissed. Uh, I have not slept well. Because some of what I heard, it wasn't even the rape that we were there for. Part of what I heard was I heard juror number one. What they ask, they ask, how many of you have been raped, sexually molested, or assaulted? Juror number one. How many of you have either been raped or you know someone who has? Juror number one, my daughter. Juror number two. She's probably a little younger than I am. She looked like a little girl, just terrified. She told the story about how she had been repeatedly molested by her stepfather and then groomed. I'm not sure what she meant by that, but it didn't sound good. Juror number three, my girlfriend. One after another after another, either having been raped. One man, uh, one man um, found out that his older sister um, was a child born out of his mother being raped. And his wife also raped. Um, another woman, another woman, she had been raped, and, and, and the attorney asked her, did you tell anybody? And she said, no. And she said, why? And she said, well, I was afraid that if my father knew, he would kill the person, and I didn't want him to go to prison. Now, folks, that woman was probably, I don't know, seven or eight years younger than me. The first time she's talking about that experience was on Monday in front of 75 or 80 strangers. 
What I'm trying to tell you is this. There is all kinds of brokenness all around us. There is brokenness. There is pain. There is horrible pain. If it's not that pain, it's another kind of pain. And what I'm telling you is people need hope. And people need to know that they don't have to be a victim for the rest of their lives. People need to know that there is a message called the gospel. And through the gospel... People who, people who were victims can become overcomers. That there is healing in the gospel. There is forgiveness in the gospel. There is hope in the gospel. And there is not a single person God cannot use to proclaim that message. And it's what we're supposed to be about. Sorry. Uh, 4 through 14. Broad overview. Uh, 15. Uh, through 21. Jesus, Jesus highlights a time of particularly great distress. Uh, he, he highlights a, particularly, uh, a time of a particularly great distress. And, um, and he, he talks about it. And one of the things as you read through Matthew is you need to pay attention before you get to Matthew 24. So if you haven't been paying attention before Matthew 24, if you think you know how Matthew and how Jesus uses Old Testament Scripture, but you haven't been studying it before you get to chapter 24, you will not understand how Jesus is using it in chapter 24. Because there are a lot of quotations of Old Testament Scripture way before Matthew 24. And so if you had already made up your mind, you, you know how Jesus is using Old Testament Scripture in Matthew 24, but you haven't been studying, paying attention to it in the previous chapters, there's a good chance you're going to tell Jesus what he means by what he's saying instead of letting Jesus tell you what he is saying, by what he, he's saying, what he means by what he's saying. Right, I know how to say that. Uh, there, you know, there's what is said, there's what is said, and there's what is meant. There's what is heard, and there's what is understood. I don't care what you've heard or understand. I don't care what I've heard and understand. I want to know what did Jesus say and what did he mean. And to get back to that, you need to pay attention to how is the Old Testament Scripture being used in the book of Matthew. And it might be wise to read through Daniel chapters 8, to chapter 12 a few times, not one time, a few times, and make a few notes. This is where, uh, this is where uh, Carson is on the subject. Uh, he, he says this, the expression, uh, the abomination of desolation occurs three, or, well, it occurs three different times in the book of Daniel. Uh, chapter 9, verse 27, chapter 11, verse 31, chapter 12, verse 11. And then in chapter 8, verse 13, there's something that, that's called the rebellion that causes desolation. Each of these are a little bit different. Carson says this, Daniel 11.31 clearly refers to the desecration of the temple in 168 B.C. by Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, some of you, it's just, if you read through Daniel chapter 11, it talks about the king of the north, the king of the south, king of the north, king of the south, king of the north, king of the south. Anybody know who these kings are? Anybody ever hear of Alexander the Great? Alexander the Great dies. And who takes over the Greek Empire? Okay, his four generals. His four generals do. Okay? One of them is a guy named uh, Seleucus. Uh, uh, and one of them, his name is Ptolemy. The south, north. North, south. Okay? Seleucus takes the north. That's the Seleucid Empire dynasty. The south, Ptolemy. The Ptolemaic uh, dynasty. Who's between those two? Israel. There's all these wars, all these battles. Eventually, there comes one who comes into power through intrigue. Uh, he is very wicked. He is very evil. Uh, historically, we know him as Antiochus Epiphanes. Some people call him Antiochus Epimenes. Okay? He called himself Antiochus, Antiochus Theos Epiphanes, meaning uh, Antiochus God Manifest. Others simply called him Epimenes, which means madman, because he was wicked and he was evil. He went into the temple. He slaughtered, uh, uh, he slaughtered a, a pig on the altar of the Lord. 
He made, uh, he made the, the worship of Jehovah and he made Judaism illegal. He forbid uh, the practice of circumcision. He, uh, he did away with the temple sacrifice and he turned the temple into a brothel, a whorehouse. Okay? The guy was wicked. Very, very wicked. Um, so what's Jesus doing here? What's Jesus doing here? What happened 70 A.D.? The temple's destroyed. The siege began in 66 A.D. According to Josephus, 1.1 million people died. It was a slaughter. This was not... uh, In World War II, you see larger numbers of people dying, but in terms of concentration of suffering, this is one of the most... it It was horrific... People, people were reduced to cannibalism, eating their children to stay alive. Yeah, Josephus tells about that. It was, it was a terrible, terrible time. It was an abomination of desolation. Are you with me here? Um, I, I think that Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple there. Uh, will there be a future abomination of desolation? I think so. I do. Will there be a future time of great suffering? I think so. I think so. But I, I think that, that, that Jesus is answering that question for him there. Uh, and then, you know what? I just, I, I apologize. I'm going like way long. Okay? Verses 22 through 28, Jesus warns against false messiahs, false, uh, false they're going to come between the two advents. Uh, verses 29 through 31, Jesus talks about the coming of the Son of Man, the end of the age. It's going to be climactic. There's going to be a darkening of the sun and the moon. There's going to be something that looks like the falling of stars from the heavens. Now, this could be understood figuratively, and a lot of apocalyptic teaching is supposed to be understood this way. Or it could be there's something that looks like stars falling from heaven. Could be. Could be like a a huge meteor shower. It could be, I don't know, anybody, what's the name of that? It's Deep Impact or something like that about these two comets that are coming crashing towards the earth. I don't know, something like that. I, I, I don't know. We don't know. We just know it's going to be, there's going to be this, this and, and then uh, it's going to be like lightning from the east to the west. Basically, what's going to happen is it's going to be very, very dramatic. And the scriptures, it says here, uh, Jesus says, uh, verse 30, uh, Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with glory, excuse me, with power and great go- glory, and, and this is language borrowed from Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, uh, Daniel writes this, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. Uh, who, he approached the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power, All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. All right. And then Jesus talks about the lesson of the fig tree. Basically, the point of the lesson of the fig tree is this. Between now and the second advent, you're going to see suffering. I saw it this week. I have no doubt you did too. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be wars. There's going to be rumors of wars. There's going to be famine. There's going to be persecution. But every time we see this, we are reminded that Jesus is coming again. We are reminded that Jesus is coming again. That, folks, we have good news. Jesus is coming again. Uh, I want to throw up one more thing, and I'll, 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 we'll, we'll be done here, okay? Uh, actually, let's move on to... okay. Um, points of application. Number one, don't be deceived by false teachers, false messiahs. Number two, do not be overwhelmed by tribulation and suffering. It's going to happen. Okay? It's going to happen. By the way, this is part of the reason why I really get upset with the prosperity gospel and people talking about, you know, just believe in Jesus and everything's going to go perfect. And it didn't go perfect for Jesus. It didn't go perfect for any of his, you know, the apostles. They, they all died, except for John. He was, he was the lucky one. He got away with being boiled in oil. Okay, 
but don't be overwhelmed by tribulation or suffering. Number three, be resolute in following Jesus to the very end. Okay? Be resolute. Number four, live like a missionary right where you are. By the way, in your bulletin, there are two index cards. One index card is for you. This is what I want you to ask you to do. Write down the name of a person or a couple of people or three people or however many you want to write. People that you want to see with you in Christ's kingdom when he comes again. I just want to ask you to carry that in your Bible and begin to pray for them on a daily basis. There's two index cards. The other index card is for you to put your name on, who you're praying for, and if you want me to pray with you and pray for you, I will pray for you. And you can give that to me. You can put it in the offering bag, and, and they'll give it to me. But, 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 but live like a missionary right, right where you are. Number five, pursue a well-rounded understanding of theology. Don't get that distorted picture, the big nose, you know. Um, but pursue a well-rounded understanding of theology. Number six, don't get caught up in other people's predictions of when Christ is coming and try to see Bible prophecy and newsfeed headlines. Okay? A lot of people want to say, you know, they can predict when Jesus is going to come again, which is kind of interesting because Jesus says, about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son of Man, but only the Father. Don't get caught up in that. Don't get caught up in that. Uh, you know, I don't know how to finish, so let's pray, okay? God, um, what we want to do is we want to acknowledge that that you are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. You have all authority. You have all power. And you reign forever. And God, my prayer is that we will not be people who are undone by suffering. That we will see it. We will love people in it. And that we will point them to the hope that we have in Jesus. Lord, help us to not be deceived by false teaching and false doctrine. God, help us to stand firm to the end. God, when other people's love goes cold, I pray that our, uh, our hearts will be warmed with your love and that, our, that we will stand firm in love. And, and I pray, God, uh, that when we see suffering, we will remind ourselves that Jesus is coming again. In Christ's name, amen.